Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 44. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about convergent migrations of humans and monarch butterflies. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. Today, we have Dr. Columba Gonzalez Duarte on the show. Dr. Columba Gonzalez Duarte received her doctorate in 2019 from the Department of Anthropology at the University of Toronto. She recently served as a consultant for the Commission on Environment Cooperation and was the first recipient of the 2019-2020 Faculty of Arts and Science Max Planck Institute for Religious and Ethnic Diversity postdoctoral fellowship starting in summer 2019. In summer 2020, Dr. Gonzalez Duarte relocated to Halifax, Nova Scotia to take up a tenure track position in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Mount St. Vincent University. So welcome to the show, Columba. Oh, hi, Jessica. Thanks for having me. I also wanted to start with a land acknowledgement. I'm recording this podcast from Mi'kmaq, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people here in what we know today as Nova Scotia, Canada. I love that. I think you are the first person on the podcast to do a land acknowledgement, like a second land acknowledgement after my land acknowledgement. So that's awesome, first of all. Second of all, really excited to have you here. So Columba is a colleague of one of my colleagues, and we actually almost briefly worked together at one point about a decade ago, I want to say. And yeah, I'm really excited to have her on the show. She's a Mexican ethnographer. And again, Always love to have other ethnographers, cultural anthropologists on the show. And I really think that you guys will all find her approach to her topic really interesting. So she's basically looking at monarch butterflies and human interactions and just like how much we can learn from so many different things just by by looking at that one interaction, including environmental impacts, social justice, politics, social issues, all, all kinds of things that we will get into here in this podcast. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to have her and I hope that you guys will enjoy learning more about her work. So first, I'd like to start out with how you got into this field and what got you interested in this type of work. Good question. So if I have to do a date, I think it starts in my undergrad, I had a professor that was a bit of not the common professor in anthropology at the time in Mexico, who was interested in anthropology through a lens of how humans relate with nature. So he kind of sparked that interest in me and I did 
work in what we call now political ecology and did an ethnography of water in a community in, in the region where I was doing my undergrad in central Mexico. So after that, for my master's degree, I kept interested in the topic of water and how humans relate with water. But I add a component of land and I worked in a binational project in Texas. This project was an incredible, interesting project. I, I lived in the lower Rio Grande Valley almost for a year, documenting access to land and water among immigrant communities, uh, mostly from Mexico, living in Texas in that area. And that project, although it was such a good experience, I also recognized at that moment that I wasn't fully prepared to work with undocumented communities. I just felt I didn't have what was needed for them. They will often ask me for help in legal terms, translations, or just, you know, human to human support. And although I did it as an ethnographer there, when I picked my topic for the PhD, decided it was better for me to sort of take distance from the um, topic of, of human migrations. And then I decided to switch to conservation. And I first picked a topic on whales. This is interesting, but I wanted to, I have conducted an ethnography at that moment on Mexico, another one in the United States. So I felt like if I was living in Canada because I migrated to Toronto to do my PhD, I wanted to incorporate Canada in my studies. So to do an anthropology at home, so to say. And so I thought, okay, it will be very interesting to this topic on whales. I'm curious. Okay, so where did you grow up? Because then you went to university in central Mexico. And then, well, first of all, I guess, where did you go to college? And is that like why you chose Texas? And then it's, it's, it's just kind of interesting because you're slowly like working your way north. <laughs> like you move all the way across North America. <laughs> it is, you know, Mexico, it is totally. Uh, US, Canada, uh-huh. <laughs> Thanks for asking. Yes, yes, yeah, I was born in Mexico, in central Mexico, and educated among a farm and the city. And then I decided to do my undergrad in anthropology at Universidad de las Americas, Puebla, in, in Mexico. I did my undergrad with this professor that was interested in political ecology and this ethnography of water. And then I also did my master's degree in Mexico, but uh, I a professor that connected me with a binational project. Uh, so I was able to do an ethnography in the United States, although my degree was from Mexico. So that's sort of that journey that you, you talk about. I did the undergrad in Mexico, then the master's degree was a field work in Texas. And then for the PhD, I applied to different PhDs, but as you say, I'm, I'm curious. So I decided to, to move to Canada. And that's when I looked for a different topic uh, that in which I could incorporate Canada in some way. So, yeah, I came with this idea of following whales. And then I realized, well, that's the other coast. <laughs> that's the east coast of Canada <laughs> where I was living. And the, the, the whales were in the, in the west coast of Canada. So that's pretty much like just crossing a whole and large country. But I was still interested in this idea of how other um, species move. And... Um, everything sort of led me to the monarch butterfly, which has important habitat in the region of Toronto and Ontario, and that has also important habitat in Texas, which was one of my fieldwork sites, and obviously in Mexico where they overwinter. So 
I feel I was better prepared to do that field work. And that's sort of it. Um, I also have to add that my supervisor, my mentor at the University of Toronto, she was interested in birds. She worked with uh, doing an ethnography of bird watchers. So I felt, okay, if I do an ethnography of butterflies that also attract lots of those same community of bird watchers, they, they're called more butterfly amateurs or butterfly watchers, then we will have that connection. And it actually happened. So we had some sort of a theme that connected us and she was the one that pushed me to think in terms of how to do an interspecies ethnography. So, I mean, I'm curious because in a lot of ways, what a lot of ethnographers do is they'll kind of pick like a people or a region and then like kind of talk generally about these kinds of issues. And you almost kind of did the opposite where you like picked something specific like water or, you know, the butterflies and looked at that more broadly it's kind of like an, an interesting, different way of approaching a topic, I guess. Yes, you're, you're totally right. I, I guess that that education in my undergrad years, you know, this, this university was in a rural area in which you see how people relate with water or land in very meaningful ways, like water forms social life. So, yeah, it shaped the way I started seeing water beyond being a resource that was used by humans. And so I, I, I guess you're right. That was already my way of thinking when I picked butterflies. Always thinking that it's not that I do a study of butterflies. I still I do a study of how humans relate with butterflies and butterflies with humans. Right, right. But yeah, exactly. in, in a way, I like to follow other things to understand human social life. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, so basically you decide you want to look at people and their connection, or not their connection, but like people and butterflies. How did you decide like where you wanted to go with that? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> it took a couple of writing and rewriting uh, for research grants. Uh, <laughs> <what> was double. <laughs> I knew I wanted to do uh, field work in the three countries. And I knew because I was a single researcher, which, you know, it's the way PhDs are done, probably would have been a better project if I had a colleague doing co-ethnography, but it's, it's still uh, hard to find the possibility of doing that as a PhD student. So as a single grad student that you have to do your own fieldwork, I knew I had to pick communities that I knew, that, that I was familiar with. So I picked Texas, although I end up not working in Texas and we can, we can talk about why, but I picked Texas in the beginning. Mexico, which is very near Mexico City's area where I grew up, although it was sort of a feel, new fieldwork area, but not completely new. You know, I had I was familiar with the area and the Monarch Butterfly Reserve, which is in Michoacan and Estado de Mexico. And then fully new area were two. Uh, one was the Midwest region of the United States. I picked that because there's an important lab there working with butterflies, especially, especially with Monarch Butterfly Conservation. So I knew that was an important site to do ethnography with and that took me to do ethnography in a lab and with very different uh, subjects of the usual subject that anthropologists will have or, or at least the one I was familiar with. So I 
in a way that challenged my mind. And I thought, okay, I want to do an ethnography with this scientist. And then I picked a national park in Canada that is an emblematic site where monarch butterfly cross. This is one of the Great Lakes. This is Great Erie. They cross the lake to start the migration. So it's one of the most important sites to see monarchs departing the migration in Canada. So I knew that was also an important hop. That's how I started. I ended up not conducting fieldwork at the border, part because it wasn't completely safe at that moment, and part because there were very little monarchs in Texas the years I was doing fieldwork. So it, it just became harder and harder to find narratives about monarchs. And I stayed with those three physical sites. Eventually, I add a fourth site, which is an online forum, because I found out through the years of talking with my uh, human interlocutors that they were deeply connected online. That's the only way it makes sense for such a large network of people to be connected. So I decided to enroll in this list and this forum and follow characters across the years. And they do they, they are part of the ethnography. They are part of the book. Okay, I have two questions. First, you mentioned in Michoacan, the, like, uh, what did you say? Was it a preserve? Uh, it's the Monarch Butterfly Biosphere Reserve. It's an, an UNESCO designation, yes. So, was, first of all, was that something that you were familiar with growing up and before you got into this research? Like, was there some sort of element of interest already there from when you were growing up in central Mexico. And then second of all, so you're looking at this reserve and scientists and the online community. How did you like bring that all together into a dissertation? Yeah, when I decided to pick the Monarch Butterfly Biosphere Reserve, I chose this site knowing that it was the most important region to to do a research with monarch plays at least in Mexico. And at that moment, I thought that was the hub of everything because monarchs hibernate there. They spend the winter there. The magnificent of the, of the hibernation phenomenon is, is something that you see there. So I knew it was sort of the core side. I have been had previous experiences of how reserves work. Uh, to be honest, that was quite a new experience to me uh, to see how people live inside the reserve, uh, a biosphere reserve in Mexico. We didn't have many of those when I was growing up. For uh, at least my experience also growing up in a farm is that I had more of a fluid connection with nature. It wasn't something that you need to protect or you need to go and visit. It was more something of my my growing up environment. So yeah, the, I wasn't familiar with even the concept and how people lived inside them, uh, which is it's not as easy as one will think. It's, it's hard to live in a reserve, especially one that is protected internationally as this reserve is. So that's how I, I arrived to the topic, just knowing that the whole phenomena of the hibernation of this animal exists only in Mexico and only at that reserve. Before you move on, could you talk a little bit more about what makes it hard to live in a reserve? I mean, were the were were these communities there before the reserve and or were were they more like caretakers and came in afterwards? Can you just touch on that real quick? Yeah. Well, land in Mexico after the um, the revolution, there was a restitution of land that was grabbed during the colony, and that restitution used a model that mixed 
different understanding of the land and between an European model and an indigenous model. But to make a summary of this kind of land is social property, is a hido, is owned commonly. So what you will often have, not only for this reserve, but many other biosphere reserves or protected areas in Mexico, is that these are owned by communally by the community and it's called ejido, which is this case. So people right. can have their ejido, they have also their communities where they live. Probably they will use the land for different purposes, depending on the habitat that you have. In this case, because it's a forest, it's a mountain, they use the low hills for a meal per region where do where they do have agricultural activities for, you know, corn and squash and chili and other food that they produce for the household. But they can also use the upper forest for other sorts of resources. This could be wood or harvesting different weeds or mushrooms and or hunting. The groups in this area use in colonial times after the colony for some centuries used to be hunters and gatherers. That changed across the years as a process of forced acculturation that we may not have time to pack here, but they end <laughs> yeah. up settling <laughs> in, in the reserve permanently and living in the lower hills and using not full time or not very intensively the upper hills with the monarch butterfly uh, hibernates. So under those conditions, when reserves are institute in a region, when this happens, especially from a top-down process without consultation, well, people in this case, they kept titles and tenures of the land, of the communal land, but they don't have access to the core regions, uh, meaning the top of the mountains where the butterflies hibernate in the winter. And so, and just to clarify, they don't have access all year round. So it's uh, in this case, what is difficult is that they would probably need resources that they harvest in seasonally in the summer or fall, and they don't have access all the year. Although monarchs in this region only live uh, during the winter months, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think we're at a good point to take our first break. And then when we get back, we can get into my second question that I'll finally let you get to, which was about your dissertation and tying all of this data together. So we will be right back and we will get to that talk. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. We are back. And 
I kept distracting you, but now I want to make sure that we get to your dissertation and (laughs) how you pulled together. I mean, you were looking at a research institute related to monarch butterflies, uh, reserve online communities, and then am I missing a fourth one? I feel like I'm missing the U.S. one. Yeah, a park in Canada, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you bring this all together into your dissertation? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) Uh, can things really be brought together? <laughs> right, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they can, but at the same time, it's, it's always a challenge. So I guess because I have this challenge of having four sites that I picked, and then if you conduct field work in new sites, I mean, to follow something that moves through those regions uh, in a way connecting them, as an ethnographer, I tried very hard to keep the field work focused in the butterfly and those monarch-human relationships that played on at my sites of study. It was not always easy, and that's what makes actually the interesting part of this thesis. I, as usual, you will start finding things that you don't expect to find, but I was finding those in relations to my questions with butterflies. So, for example, human migration is a topic that emerged, which will take me to other new terrains, to other new questions. So, where do you cut the net? <laughs> it was a difficult process for some years. When and where do I cut? And I sort of decided to, well, first of all, this is something that we all have to do at some point. We just cut and connect what we have. And second, let's tell this story to, if not my main actors, because I don't want to say I have one that has more priority than other, but at least the one that brought me to this topic, let's tell this story and put it together through the lens of how this butterfly inhabits in North America. So I think that was a key moment in which I decided that this interspecies ethnography was going to be put together uh, thinking in the life cycle. So instead of arranging sites uh, or, or like the field work when I was writing the thesis by sites or by countries or by actors, or I decided to arrange it in the monarch butterfly life cycle. So I started writing with an egg and I finished with an egg. And that was a way of thinking how you can write an interspecies ethnography, but also to solve that issue of putting things together in such a, I have this complexity of working across North America, right? So that in a way made things easier on one hand and more complicated on the other, of course. It was a challenge, but a good one to have. And it helped me in, in where to cut because if I had material that was not related with events, perceptions of the life cycle itself, let's say a um, molting caterpillar, which you may don't know what it is, but it's a caterpillar that is is ripping its skin to when they grow. Uh, if I don't have information that was connected with those moments on those sites that I saw a molting caterpillar or someone saw one or someone make a connection with a molting caterpillar, I will not use it, at least not in that chapter. I'm not sure if I'm explaining myself well, but you can ask me more questions on this if you want. But it was a good way in which I was able to decide what material will belong to the dissertation and what material will not belong to the dissertation if I was putting attention only what this butterfly was doing at the moment I was there. 
And, and, and I know this adds a layer of, of another complexity, but monarchs live in different states across North America. We have eggs and caterpillars and adults in what we call now Canada and United States, but we only have butterfly adults in Mexico. So uh, it's important in the way that people across this corridor connect with a different, uh, well, it's the same animal, but in a different state. So um, narrating this, like writing the, the dissertation through the life cycle also allowed me to convey that complexity. Like people in the reserve in Mexico only nork no monarchs as adults. So it made sense to make connections and to write about that interspecies relation of an adult butterfly in migration and a hibernation and uh, people in Mexico, for example. So, okay. I mean, thinking about, like, I remember learning about monarch butterflies when I was in, I want to say elementary school. And it was like a Mm -hmm. very common, big, interesting topic. Yeah. And thinking about it, part of what people really love about monarch butterflies is that they're beautiful, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious if there was like a bias in your data, since you're like arranging it by part of the life cycle, if, you know, the butterfly stage was like a part that like really resonated with people and and the caterpillar stage or, you know what I mean, was like less interesting to them. Mm-hmm. Did you find any of, of that kind of, you know, cause humans are attracted to pretty, right? Well, it doesn't happen. Not at the level of, of people that really cohabit with monarchs in for different reasons, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if you're a scientist in the lab and that's this is your working animal, you know that it's important from the egg to the day it dies. Like it doesn't matter in which state it is. And you will learn that through that uh, living and, and cohabiting with, with the insect. The same in Mexico, if you are a peasant or, or part of an indigenous community living in the reserve, you know that those butterflies are, are adult butterflies. They were actually an egg in Canada and that there are those, that those relations matter and that the fact that they possibly, for example, are blamed of not having enough adult butterflies in Mexico, they know now <laughs> they have a really good response saying, well, probably we don't have healthy eggs in Canada, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, when you, when you cohabit and you interact with this butterfly, you sort of develop that way of thinking that we tend to, of course, give priority to something that is beautiful or that flies away, but it's, you quite quickly realize that it's actually as important in any state of its life cycle. And that's a journey I also had. I was I don't even knew about the life cycle of the butterfly in the way now I understand it now. And, and for me, it was also a matter of, of learning how, how if you decide to produce knowledge with non-humans, you, you have to be open to see, to sort of crumble down those hierarchies that we have created uh, among animals and of course among humans. So in a way, yeah, it took me to conversations about speciation, about why we actually prioritize this butterfly on top of other animals that also migrate or, or that do not migrate, but are equally important for that habitat. And so I think that people that work and live with this butterfly will have that kind, that same kind of thinking. Even the, the people that 
rear monarchs, I don't know if you, you are familiar with these communities, but there's a large community interested in rearing and having monarchs as a companion species at home. They are the ones that probably get interested in monarchs because they are beautiful, but then they are the ones that yeah, you will see them hunting eggs, as they call it, and raising caterpillars at home. And understanding that is the full life cycle well, will give you the possibility of sighting that beautiful butterfly adult. Okay. Uh, so many questions. <laughs> so, okay. One that I just really want to ask you before I forget or it gets away from me is, you know, in a lot of ways, like you really represent all of your different communities that you're looking at because, you know, like you're, you grew up in central Mexico and you are a, a scientist, even if you're not a zoologist or not a zoologist, what's a uh, who studies butterflies? <laughs> um, <laughs> entomologies. Yeah, entomologies. People in biodiversity conservation science. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Sorry. So you grew up in central Mexico and you, you know, you're also a researcher, these scientists that you're working with. And, you know, like you're on these forums and you're also living in Canada, you know, interacting with these parks. So it's like in a way, there's almost like an auto ethnography element because like these are all kind of parts of you did that ever resonate with you at all did you ever think about that this is a good question i wouldn't say that this feels like as an autoethnography but i what i can tell you is that yes my positioning across this corridor of being born in Mexico and having made all my way to, to a PhD, well, a master's degree working in Texas and then a PhD living in Toronto, gave me a good position for the research I picked. Perhaps I was lucky to have that, that as a coincidence, but what I felt it did is it opened really interesting conversations. And conversations that I don't, I'm not sure that it would have had if I wasn't a Mexican, for example, doing fieldwork in Canada. Right. Or someone living in Canada was doing fieldwork in Mexico for those particular communities. So, yes, mm -hmm. my positionality was uh, very helpful in being able to gather good information. And at some point also took me to, to the ethical grounds. Uh, what can I do? What can I do with these complex topics? What can I do with the... Um, immigrant communities that will talk to me in the national park in Canada. This was something I wasn't expecting at all. I, I have this, uh, this memory of, I, I was living in this park in Point Pelee National Park uh, doing my first field work. And I spent, I guess, maybe two or three weeks inside the park, just thinking in butterflies and people that were coming to the park to see monarchs, although there were very few monarchs that year. And finally I decided to back to town because I have to, uh, do, by food. And I see all these large Mexican community making groceries as me in town. I'm like, I felt fully dislocated. Like what's going on here? I had no idea there was such a large Mexican immigrant community that, uh, that works as uh, temporary workers in that same region. And of course we start connecting and bonding and talking Spanish in the little town of Limington. And that ended up being part of, of, of one of my, of my chapters. So 
that positionality again of me being a Mexican and living in those areas and inquiring those topics that connect us across the corridor, it enabled good answers, I would say, or, or sometimes difficult ones. But it did position me in a good way to take a stand on my research uh, to talk about humans and butterfly migrations. How did this community connect to the monarch butterflies? Like, was there a sense of like, oh, hey, these are the same butterflies that we have back at home or... Yeah, how did they relate to the topic? It depends how depends in which part, from which part of Mexico they are. Some of them are actually from Michoacan, and some of them they will not always know that monarchs depart from that region because they. I'm not sure if you or your audience are familiar with the seasonal agricultural workers program that Canada has, but it's a program that brings workers from Mexico seasonally to harvest vegetables in this region, predominantly in Ontario, but they also have it in Quebec and here in Nova Scotia as well, for a few months. When they arrive to those farms, they live only in the farm in quite hard conditions, and they don't relate with members of the community beyond the farm, only with the fellow Mexican workers that they came with. So for some of them, they don't even have an idea that monarchs were there or departing because they just can't connect with the town or the surroundings, let alone visiting our nature park. So for them, it was interesting to, like, they will ask me, like, what are you doing here? You work in the farm or or, like, what's, how, how come there's another Mexican (laughs) in this region? And, And then I will explain while I'm doing this research with butterflies and for some was uh, they will make the connection right away for some they had not, no knowledge about monarchs departing from those sites in Canada but once we talk about that um, well it sparked lots of you know jokes and connections and good conversations of how different species migrate and how people other animals have these drive to move uh, across territories so yeah lots of those conversations will be around having two homes living across borders which you can imagine they were very rich and at some point I felt well I have to be able to incorporate this in in dissertation. That's one of the things that I really love about this approach in the sense that you know you're taking one thing or one species well two because people also (laughs) but (laughs) but it can show so much more about human interactions just by looking at this like one topic basically that you wouldn't think that you would be able to get into all of these different elements of the environment and politics and yeah just all these larger issues it's really interesting and i mean i i personally used political ecology for my thesis for my master's thesis And it's really, I think, a really interesting type of theory that, like, has largely only really been used, it seems like to me, at least at the time when I was working on my thesis, in one way, which was kind of like, you know, how Latin American peasants have ruined the environment because of social and political stuff. And I think that there's just a lot more interesting ways to use the ideas behind political ecology. And I think that this is, like, a really good example of that. So, sorry, that's not really a question, I guess. <laughs> true, true. No, yeah, but it's a, it's it's like it's an interesting comment and um you know, I was formed in political ecology, clearly migrated to other terrain of post-humanities, um this attention to the non-human and considering that non-humans 
have agency. And throughout the years, I've been able to merge both in a way that I still pay attention to those complexities of power relations. But I also insist or push myself to see what a non-human can do. And I think that when you open as an anthropology, I guess archaeologists will be more into this position right away because they do work with material culture. But for social anthropologies, this could be, it's it's passion the boundaries of our discipline, which has been very rich for me, doing myself that question of what a butterfly can do, what is enabling, what is not enabling besides as an agent, as a earth being that is, is capable of acting and doing things, that is what takes, or at least in my case, took me to those all these very different questions and interests and sites. So, yeah, I think that approach of thinking with the known humans, in this case, a butterfly, is what brought that richness to the fieldwork. And then just also, I guess, a commitment that uh, partly may come from my own Latin American background uh, or my, my I, and I mean this in personal and academic terms, that uh, how we take these very interesting inquiries to the level of social justice. So how... And, uh, to me, now that starts making sense in thinking in eco-social justice terms, I want this butterfly to to live across this corridor. But that also means if we want to pay attention to that, that we need humans to live and um, flourish across this corridor in the same terms. Yeah. Okay. So this is like a perfect stopping point because I really want to get into all of these aspects in the next segment, you know, looking at what the relationship between monarch butterflies and humans tells us about the environment and social justice and politics and all of these things and how what you have learned from this study about all of these larger things and how they they tie together. So on that note, we are going to be taking our second break. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so final segment. Before we move on, I was thinking about this and thinking we should probably define what political ecology is because most of our audience is not necessarily cultural anthropologists. So if you want to start in by just like giving your 10 second, well, that's probably not possible, but real quick explanation of the basics of political ecology and then let's go into it, like what you found through this lens of, of political ecology? So uh, 10 seconds may be a hard task, but I'll try. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can define in simple terms political ecology as a field that, of course, evolves from from 
previous fields, but from political economy, only that it it starts paying attention to, to that particular relationship of humans with nature. I would say that in these beginnings, it's more of a one direction, direction how humans relate to nature, but it has been evolved as a field of really see that as an interaction, how humans relate with nature and nature relates with humans. And that's sort of where I, where I see myself belonging. I, I try to think in terms of a real interaction, a real capacity of one changing the other. And how, so I ask myself this question through a political ecology lens, how nature changed this social outcomes that we see in the field, how it intervenes, how it participates, and obviously vice versa. So yeah, that we could call like the new political ecology or the recent political ecology will be paying more attention to nature as another interlocutor in the field without ignoring the political relations at place. Mm -hmm. Right. And one thing I would add to all of that is that it's not necessarily also just like at an individual level, like how people connect with nature, but also like on these larger scales. So like looking at something like NAFTA, how did NAFTA affect the physical environment? Things like that as well. So it's like all kinds of levels and angles and yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's that, that that political economy tradition that uh, nurtures political ecology is very much aware of those regional, national, and global connections and tensions. And it's always, it has in the radar looking at them without thinking in communities as isolated little spaces that are not connected to the rest of the region, the nation, or in this case, an economic lock as North America, right? So yes, you're right. Uh, and I, I see that as an essential part of my work as well. And as you mentioned, NAFTA is one of those large players that connects and disconnects people across this corridor as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And NAFTA just, I'm sure everybody knows this, but North American Free Trade Agreement, <laughs> just throwing in the, <laughs> the acronym real quick there. But yeah, so I'm really curious. I mean, obviously kind of went in some different directions with your research following your dissertation. And it seems like part of that ties into these larger topics that, that came out when you were looking at the monarch butterfly. Could we start with what looking at the human monarch butterfly relationship showed you on the environmental side and like impacts that you were seeing on the environmental side? Yeah, I think because these species lived, as I have explained, in different states, like as an egg, a caterpillar, and an adult butterfly across North America, when scientists try to protect it, they find that it really reveals the complexities of what is a healthy environment. If you don't have a healthy environment in Point Pelee, Canada, where you have eggs and caterpillars and adult butterflies, then you won't have healthy butterflies in migration in Mexico. And I think even for conservation science, it took some years to understand this complexity to better propose forms of protecting this butterfly. I, I'm not sure they have been able to found uh, the right way. But because this butterfly does migrate also across what ends up being a region that shares a large scale 
agribusiness model, it seems that that's one of the main findings. I'm, I'm not talking about uh, here as an expert of conservation, but I, I know that scientists are pointing out to those directions. What are the outcomes of the current agribusiness model of North America in, of, of, on monarch butterfly populations? And there's different authors that are pointing out that is the lack of a healthy habitat across this corridor. This is due mainly to herbicides that are killing the host plant of this butterfly, uh, milkweed. That is a plant that is native of North America, but especially of the prairie regions or the open land regions, as lower savanna, for example. And there's also relations with pesticides that kill or can damage the butterfly in the caterpillar stage. So that would be one of the main findings. We cannot think in a healthy environment locally, not even regionally. We need to think that a healthy environment implies those connections across very distant geographies or what we see as humans as distant geographies. And if that case applies to monarchs, to me, that case applies to humans. If we don't have a healthy environment in what we call today Canada, we that means we are not going to have a healthy environment in many other sites of, of, of what we call North America. Why? Because things move travel, are connected, and because if you don't have a healthy species, for example, in one side, then that eventually will have an effect in, in another one. I'm not, I'm not sure if this last part is, is fully clear, but I think to summarize, what I found is that if a monarch cannot survive without a healthy environment across this large habitat that we call North America, that applies also to humans. And those are sort of my the outcomes of my of my research. Uh, I want to seek a better environment for North Americans, with the all the implications that that has. Okay, so we're recording this in July of 2020, so coronavirus, COVID, and I think that's one <laughs> thing that people are seeing on that side as well is that you know it's, it's the same thing with health that we're all globally connected. And you can't, if you're only focusing on, you know, healthcare for those that can afford it, you're affecting everyone's health. I mean, obviously, like those populations that don't normally have access to healthcare are going to be harder hit. But like, you know, viruses also, you know, impact everyone. So it's, it's the same sort of thing, like the environment if you're not keeping the environment healthy across the whole area, it affects everyone. And it's the same thing with health, but that's a side note. Sorry. (laughs) But on that note, I'm also curious. So you, you mentioned some of these, you know, environmental impacts that you were seeing and what could be done or not necessarily what could be done, but what's causing these challenges. What about on the social justice side that you, you also mentioned earlier? Well, where to begin? I guess I'll I'll begin in the same way I start making those connections. When I start having conversations with scientists um, of the lab I worked and beyond, and even in pharma conservations in this forum that I talked about before, there's a big discussion there of how how pesticides and herbicides are affecting monarch habitat. When I start seeing that this this particular form of agroecology is having an impact on, on monarchs, well, who is participating in this agroecology? Um, what are the actors that are being affected or, or, or are getting benefits of this agroecology? 
Um, you probably know the answers. The ones that have been more effective across all North America are the poor, are also the ones that maybe and are landless now because they have been displaced from their land. And if they happen to have land, like in the case of Mexico, for example, with the reforms that occurred after when NAFTA came came active at the agrarian level, that opened the market to to the market to genetically modified corn. So this is uh, corn that could be exported from the United States to Mexico, allegedly only for, not for human consumption, but eventually after years, fields got, you know, that those transgenic seeds are trespassing to fields that are not transgenic. And we don't, we know what that does to the crops, but there's also a problem of the market. Their corn, their native corn is no longer competitive in the market. If it's not longer competitive in the market, they find themselves in a situation in which migration, forced migration is the only solution. So that's when I started making connections. So those those communities I found in Canada and in the Midwest region that are migrating, they are there because they're own forms of making a living from the land. I'm not going to say this is for all the cases, but it is something that has been documented beyond my research, especially by Elizabeth Fitting. It's because they have they, they have to migrate because they, they couldn't find a way to keep living in their land under those conditions. If you can add these, obviously the, the increase of violence that has occurred in the frame of the war on drugs, then you have the worst mix to keep these people at home. So those are the sort of connections that I do. We have to talk about this largest process that NAFTA has activated. One of them is a form, a particular form of our ecology, a market of those products across North and South that has eventually pushed people out of their land or their ancestral home. And they find themselves in situations that are precarious um, in the United States and Canada, in which they no longer have the right of, of call that land a home. And that I found deeply problematic. And in a way, um, the butterfly helps me. I have seen them helping them as well to articulate an argument of if other species move across borders, why we can do it in a way that is not criminalized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And more like Canada, I guess, in a, in the sense of, you know, allowing for movement back and forth, like you were mentioning, like the seasonal work opportunities, I guess. And I don't know, maybe I don't know enough about this program to say that it's like good or bad, but, you know, like certainly it seems like, you know, from someone who grew up in a border region in the U.S., that part of the, the problem really came in when the U.S. stopped allowing that, like, back and forth with Mexico, that once it became like this mm-hmm. hard line that, you know, if you crossed, you weren't going to necessarily like be able to get back, um, that that caused a lot of problems. Whereas like before when the border was much more fluid, but I mean, again, this is just what it seems like. And I'm this is not my topic, but... <laughs> no, sure. Like uh, we can always go back and back, right? Like why we have borders in place <laughs> in regions that didn't used to have that that national border, right? So we have we're talking about a colonial legacy here, then the building of national borders, clearly. And I think those those topics, although seem far away, in somehow we're seeing them being like they emerge and emerge constantly as these difficult past that is still it's not we couldn't even say that it's hunting us it's just making the present harder for most of us and i'm not saying that 
obviously some of us have many more privileges than uh, other populations, but we are seeing how there is sort of an extension of crisis of social justice and ecological justice. I would say it seems to be every day more common. And, and this ties me to your question on Canada. Yes, it's true that Canada made a model that allows we document at least to do this back and forth migration in which we could, I don't want to assess the model as more positive necessarily, but we have to recognize that, uh, that, that they have a system in place that does not criminalize that kind of migration. But it's also true that the model of having workers for eight months living without their families, without being able to make ties with the country is one that is not necessarily positive or healthy right. for those workers. They are forced to live in very hard conditions for eight months and they cannot bring their families. That's the only rule and they cannot make permanent ties with Canada. So they are they are seasonal in all the sense of that word. And I think that there's, there's some big problems with that model as well. We've talked about the environment and we've talked about social justice. And like, I know that one part of your work has really focused on DACA. And mm-hmm. first let's talk about how this specifically ties into DACA. So that's like one social justice aspect. I'm also curious Mm -hmm. to hear you talk a little bit about this indigenous ecological knowledge aspect that you've also looked at. So I guess first let's go to DACA and the Dreamers and then move in Mm -hmm. with a little bit of time that we have left to the indigenous ecological knowledge aspect. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I'll try to be short with the dreamers because it's an actual ongoing project. So I'm still exploring the topic. But when I was conducting fieldwork, I didn't find many events or situations in which people will make a political connection of this right to live across borders. It will probably emerge as an individual conversation with my interlocutors, but not as a political act. When I finished the fieldwork, President Trump decided to review DACA, uh, likely to terminate DACA, which stands for Deferral Action for Childhood Arrivals. Then we see a connection with these immigrant youth that we call Dreamers, and this is, comes from the Dreamers Act that Obama tried to implement, but he failed on doing so, and that's the reason he uh, implemented DACA. We see a use of dreamers of the monarch butterfly as a symbol of their resistance, as a symbol of that right to live across two homes. And to me, that attracts a lot of attention because this is not the first time that monarchs have been used to talk about the things that should move across borders. Actually, NAFTA, the environmental side of NAFTA, the Commission of of Environmental Cooperation, uses monarchs as a symbol. So they have been present in this discourse of open borders, but to reinforce NAFTA. But to see that, let's say, the other side, this side of political action on immigrant youth really caught my attention. It's the first time I think it's, it's occurring in this corridor. It's a powerful symbol. And I'm trying to make a connection now. The reasons that we see it now is, and I'm I'm, I'm still uh, making my way out this uh, around these ideas. But I think the reason we see it emerging now as a symbol of resistance or a standard of the right to move across borders is because monarchs are also positioned now in this corridor as a species that need attention and a species that is also living these precarious conditions. So in a way, I feel that that taking of of, of the monarch from 
these populations speaks uh, it it reinforces or it gives me strength to keep thinking that we have to talk about eco-social justice, that those things that I try to do with my research and my dissertation and a future book are actually pointing out in a, in a good direction. So I'm going to close that there because I know we have little time and I'm going to try to move to the indigenous ecological knowledge, unless you have another question on that. Nope. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Okay. So that project also talks about of of the ways move, humans move across borders, and I've been uh, naming this project. It, it starts as a consultant for exactly the Commission of Environmental Cooperation, the NAFTA organization that let's say tries to keep a healthy environment for North Americans. They hire me to do this consultation on the existence of traditional ecological knowledge. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this category, but that category stands for TK and is fairly used now in conservation projects. So they are trying to see if there are traditional ways in which nature was is, is or was understood that could be good for that environment. So the new agencies that promote conservation are trying to bring TK, let's say, on board of their of their policies. So this was a first attempt and we just did a full tracking of any document in the two migrations, because we haven't talked about this, but there's an East migration of monarchs and there's a Western migration of monarchs. So this project entailed both migrations. And we did a tracking of all the information that we could find of any knowledge related with monarch butterflies or their habitat. It was very rich, but in a few words, I'm not sure that this is what the Commission of Environmental Cooperation was expecting, because what I found, or what my team, uh, along with my team, is that we found, I should say it, is that there is lots of indigenous knowledge related with monarchs, but not necessarily with monarchs as a species. It's related with their habitat, it's related with ideas of butterflies in general or flying animals. They don't have, or we couldn't find documentation of seeing these butterflies as in, let's imagine this in a hierarchy that being more important because it migrates or because it hibernates. It's important because it's part of the habitat. It's important because it brings specific things to that habitat. So that finding to me was actually central. These communities have of knowledge documenting a wave of related with habitat that thinks in moralistic terms, that thinks, yeah, we need healthy butterflies, but we also need healthy milkweed and healthy humans on it. To me, that's uh, a really powerful tool. I think these uh, attention in ecological, in indigenous ecological knowledge, the deserves a place in conservation, a larger place of what it has now. It's not only a box to check. It should be the way in which we should be thinking conservation. Um, and let alone that most of the groups um, also share ancestry they, that they think beyond borders because so, some of these groups, particularly between the U.S. and Canadian border, they, they were the same groups before we have that, that border at place. So even their habitats and the form they related with the land were halted with in the colonial encounter and the future creation of national borders. So we're trying to think these uh, indigenous ecological knowledge that goes across border to see if we can propose a different wave of, of conserving habitat for monarchs. 
Oh, there's so many more things I could ask you. <laughs> so I guess since we're we're essentially out of time, sadly, is there any place that you would send people if they're if they're wanting to learn more about about these topics or any resources you'd recommend? Something like that. Well, if they want to know about my my own research project, they can go to my website. It's www.mycnamecolumbagonzalez.com. And I'm, I'm describing most of these projects there. So if they want to know more about monarch conservation in general or more multi-species and interspecies ethnography with a butterfly, they can find the information there. And I would love to that they can contact me to, to see what they think. In terms of general resources for people interested in... I guess let's talk about the last topic of, or maybe two, obviously the topic of social justice and the criminalization of human migration. Well, one has to read uh, one of your podcast participants, uh, Jason De Leon. He has really good material online and as a book that I will highly recommend for anyone that is interested in this and uh, these connections of of social justice and also the role of non-humans um, rethinking social justice. For the topic of, of indigenous knowledge, I guess a good place to start is, well, the best place to start is, is always with the community. It's always, uh, if someone is doing work with indigenous community for the first time, well, they have to start making meaningful connections with the members of those communities. They have to start making part of their design project. They have to let them participate in the research questions and the planning and the budget. That I mean as an organizational practical level. In terms of resources that were useful for me at one point, uh, I really liked the book called Native Science of Gregory Cajete, which talk about this natural loss of interdependence and is trying to make really interesting bridges between indigenous knowledge as a form of science. It's not an alternative knowledge. It's, it's native science in the way that is equally valuable as, as Western science. So I'm going to leave it there. I think that will be my two recommendations. But yeah, I know I have to pick some, but I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> Great. And I will have in the show notes, the links to your website and Jason DeLeon's podcast and his book and Native Science. I think we're also going to throw in some pictures, it sounds like, from your projects. So everyone should check those out as well. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Wish we could have talked more, but it was really great learning about all of your work and, you know, a very different way of looking at all of this that I, I really find fascinating. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jessica, for having me. Thanks for your audience, for listening. Yeah, a great opportunity. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org, or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo.
This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.